Hey, what's up, guys? It's Allie on the Allie McGee podcast. I'm so thankful that you're tuning in for another Friend Friday. On this week's episode, I have CEOs and co-founders of Sparked, Kritika and Sam, who are here to chat all about emotional eating. So this episode, one, one was a blast to record and two, so educational and informational. Um, so we'll dive into everything just super deep and really understand what emotional eating is and how it looks on everyone, the myths behind emotional eating, um, and then we even cruise into emotional health and fitness and how someone can use their emotions as a GPS to find what feels good. Um, and then just a really clear process to work with your emotions versus against them. Um, and finally, we'll cover alternative coping mechanisms. Um, this one is really powerful because we give so many actionable tips and tricks that you can use today um, so that you can start to feel and cope in different ways than you maybe would have in the past. They're so knowledgeable on this topic. I'm so glad that we were able to sit down and make this happen. So stay tuned for an amazing episode and I'll link all of their information below in the show notes so you can get connected with them on Instagram and continue the conversation if you have questions. So once again, stay tuned. You're in for an amazing episode. I'll see you on the other side. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Allie on the Allie McGee podcast, and I am here with health and life coaches, Kritika and Sam, who are the CEO and co-founder of Sparked, and I'm super excited to connect with them and chat all about emotional eating um, when it comes to women's health and just living an overall healthy lifestyle. So thank you so much, ladies, for coming on the show. I'm excited to chat and kind of dig into this topic that I think rules a lot of people's world and they don't even know it. So I'm excited. Yeah. yeah thanks yeah. for having us. Thanks for having us. Of course. Of course. Um, can you guys share a little bit about yourself and how you got into the health coaching industry? Yeah. Do you want to go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I started um, about seven years ago as a yoga teacher, and then I sort of progressed into becoming a personal trainer. And then I realized when I was doing the physical side of um, health and fitness, I realized that, you know, this wasn't really enough. This wasn't really doing it. Like I wasn't helping clients in the way that I really wanted to. And that's sort of what got me into health coaching. And I think a lot of people resonate with this. If you, you know, you start with the physical side of the body and then you kind of realize that there's a lot more that goes into health and well-being and being fit and healthy. And that's when I um, enrolled at IAM. So that's where I studied. Uh, that was about five and a half years ago. And uh, yeah, that's how I sort of got into health coaching and have been doing it since. Mm. And my story is a little bit strange. <laughs> I love quite, it. 
<laughs> I was um, a TV producer for 10 years. So I worked in Paris and Sydney and I was working at 24-hour news channels and had an incredibly different life and got to a point around the age of 30 where I was just really struggling and not feeling good and depressed and really trying to figure out what was going on in my life. And I was seeing a therapist and I was really just in a place where I, I wasn't doing well. And I happened to enroll in a business school because I thought, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to create my own business. And the idea was to teach French. So it had nothing to do with coaching. And in that business school, I met a life coach. And every time I spoke to her, I just kind of felt like I should work with her and I didn't really know what coaching was. And I worked with her for three months and my whole kind of perspective on life shifted and everything changed. And then I became fascinated in coaching. So I went and studied coaching and, and the rest is history. Then I, uh, yeah, I moved to Thailand to, to practice and that's where I met the beautiful Kritika. So that's how it all happened. (laughs) I love that. Such amazing stories. Um, it's, I feel like it's always, uh, someone's pain point that always brings them into their passion and that ends up being in like flourishing into their career. So I, I always love asking how people got into their career and wh- how they ended up, um, you know, where they are today. Cause I think it, um, it's always a really special story and it kind of like tugs on a lot of heartstrings, um, for people. Mm-hmm. So I love your guys' story. So powerful. Um, Kritika, I love that you mentioned that it goes far beyond the physical, um, aspect of, you know, being healthy and how health kind of goes deeper, which, I think what you guys focus on emotional health is so much deeper than the physical looks of everything. Um, Because especially I'm sure being a personal trainer, you can help someone in the gym, but so much of life happens outside of the gym um, that that's where you have the most impact or um, opportunity to help, um, you know, educate people on the decisions they're making and really bringing that awareness of around the choices that they do make. Um, so I love that you kind of have dug deeper into your practice and really hit on the emotional part of, you know, health and wellness, because I think for a lot of people, a lack of, um, emotional intelligence um, is really one of the biggest parts. Like they either feel happy or sad or mad or bad. And it's just very like <laughs> super, like very like superficial. On the surface, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think when people have better, um, like vocabulary, a larger vocabulary in terms of emotions, they can pinpoint truly how they feel. So it's not so like of a drastic, like, shift. Um, so let's kind of chat about your specific um, focus within the health coaching realm. Um, so we kind of chatted about that it's emotional, you know, health that you guys um, focus on. What does that include? So emotional health is really, um, it's exactly what you're saying, Ali. Like, I think the point you make about having a bigger vocabulary around our emotions is really important. And for anyone that doesn't have that vocabulary, which most of us don't because none of us were kind of taught all of the different words and things, there's something that you can just Google really quickly, which is called a feelings wheel. And if anyone looks up a feelings wheel, they can kind of see like a hundred different words right there. And it's so nice to have a tool that you can look at because I think when we see the word, then we can say, oh, actually, you know what? I'm not enraged. I'm just disappointed or 
you know, I'm, I'm not actually feeling whatever it may be. And so I think emotional health is about really having a, a greater knowledge of all of your emotions. And it's really about being able to accept all of your emotions. It's about knowing that emotions aren't negative or positive. You know, we, we tend to develop all sorts of um, unhealthy behaviors to avoid negative emotions, but really emotions are just kind of like these messengers that are communicating different things to us and none of them are bad or good. They're all just signals and information and feedback. And if we can mm-hmm. learn how to be with those emotions, sit with them, accept them, process them, regulate ourselves, then, you know, our whole world just works. <laughs> so yeah. that's what we're passionate about trying to help people develop is these emotional skills where they know what their emotions are. They can approach them with an open-hearted curiosity instead of judgment. And then through that curiosity, they can learn to process them, accept them and move through them because they're all temporary. So no matter what anyone's feeling right now, and I think at the moment there are so many kind of really heavy, difficult painful emotions that people are really going through and for good reason because you know the world is in a very crazy state at the moment so I think the more that we can be okay with those emotions then the better off all of us will be and knowing that they will pass you know there will be brighter days ahead Mm, so powerful I love that you say that it's just feedback um because Mm -hmm. I think for a long like a long time and even right now there's like this like positivity like culture that's going on of like, we always have to be positive and like, you know, it's like rah, rah, like, yay, this is amazing all the time. And it's like, life isn't like that. Like we do go through these times that are, you know, sometimes hard. These sometimes even it becomes like a season where it's like a longer time frame that is rather difficult to get through. And we just have a lot of these emotions. So I think looking at them, like it's just feedback mm-hmm. is huge and being able to do so without judgment. Um, I think a lot of people put so much like, um, emphasis on it being good or bad emotion that then they're like stuck in this, just like, Oh, I can't feel sad. That's bad. That's, you know, not good or things like that. So, um, I love that you mentioned that it's just feedback. I think for a lot of people, it's hard to get there though, to like realize, Cause like for so long, we've had these emotions that we've been labeling, you know, I mean, I'm 25. So for a long time I was labeling them good or bad or, you know, and all these things until I was aware and almost was able to practice like, Oh, just like observing what my emotions are versus, you know, really pinning them down of good or bad. Um, so how does, um, emotional eating tie into emotional health or how we're feeling? I think, I think to Sam's point earlier, you know, it's, it's firstly, it's about having that emotional awareness that, you know, Mm -hmm. we have an emotional life and that isn't, you know, there isn't good or bad. This is like acceptance of the fact that, okay, we're going to have emotions and they're going to be a spectrum of emotions and, you know, variety of emotions that we're going to experience. And then the second thing is really understanding that, you know, if we judge our emotions, if we kind of, if the moment we label an emotion as bad, we have this instinct to sort of numb it and to sort of avoid it and to get rid of it. And when we do that, then when we are always trying to sort of numb or get rid of negative emotions, what we do is we develop coping mechanisms, you know, to do that. Mm -hmm. And emotional eating sort of comes into play is that emotional eating is 
a coping mechanism. It isn't mm-hmm. about the food. It's about dealing with emotions by using food. So, mm-hmm. you know, so the moment we judge emotions, we're going to want to numb them and we're going to want to escape them and avoid them. And we're going to use something. People use all sorts of coping mechanisms. Yeah. You know, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's work, there's busyness and all of those things. And food is another, you know, mm. it's a coping mechanism. And that's what emotional eating is about. Whoa, so powerful. So um, I know you were, were you a yoga instructor? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I'm so always. when, um, so when, don't they say like your issues are in the tissues? So like we store a lot <laughs> of our emotions in our hips um, so Absolutely. like, so when we suppress them, it goes down into our hips and it's really like, you see in like a pigeon pose, like people will have these wild reactions of just lots of tears or whatever. Um, so is that, that's like the release because we're finally feeling through the emotion. Is that right? Yeah. So that's the thing. It's like emotions don't just disappear. If we don't, work through them we don't process them they either get stored in our psyche so they get stored in you know they get embedded in our psyche and then we get triggered and we have anger issues and we have all sorts of other emotional issues or they get stored in our body and that's like you know when people do back bends and when they do sort of you know hip openers then people experience these emotions these sort of flow of emotions because these are all emotions that we've never felt and we've not allowed them to move through us so they kind of get stored Whoa. So it's so interesting um, that how our emotions, you know, how each person deals with emotions differently. Um, so does emotional eating look different for everyone? Like some people reach for something else, I guess. Maybe I should say the coping mechanism is different for everyone. Mm. Yeah, I think lots of people have different coping mechanisms and you might have several, you know, someone that emotionally eats might also use Netflix as a coping mechanism or they mm. they might use different things at different times. But I think, yes, it can look different for different people as in different people eat for different, emotionally eat for different reasons. So mm. there are some people that might only be triggered to eat when they're feeling very specific emotions. And this is something that anyone listening can really get clear on. And And by that, I mean, you know, are you someone that eats when you're stressed or when you're bored or when you're lonely or because <laughs> I know a lot of people that, that say, Oh, I, I'm not really an emotional eater. And then you say, well, do you eat when you're bored? Yeah. Oh, oh okay. Well, you know, that's an emotion and that's not physical hunger. So <laughs> there might be some kind of emotional eating going on. Whereas for me, I was, um, I struggled with emotional eating for years and years and years and I would eat every emotion, right? So I ate when I was sad, lonely, frustrated, stressed, bored, overwhelmed, you name it, I ate it. So I kind of was someone that turned to food always, but there's also people that turn to food because they're, as children, they were taught, they use food as like a reward mechanism. So Mm. I don't know how it was for you, Ali, but for many of us, you know, our parents reward us with food when we do it good job or you know to to try and keep our behavior in check it might be a bit of a bribe <laughs> and in australia when we go to the doctor you know if we when we have a vaccination then we used to get a lollipop so it was this you're like this give them to me <laughs> you go through something difficult or if something's you know a little bit hard then we're going to reward you with food so a lot of people have 
are emotionally eating because this is something that they've been doing since childhood without even knowing, you know, it wasn't something that they started to do necessarily, but it's become an embedded habit. So there's different reasons why people emotionally eat, but yeah. Whoa. So powerful. Um, do a lot of like the emotional kind of like, uh, ways that we deal with food. Does that stem when we are like in our adolescent years and our younger years? Yeah. Kritika, do you want to go with this one? Yeah, and this is the thing. So the the thing to remember about food is that, you know, food is is a symbolic, often used as a symbolic substitute for love because when we're born and we're infants, you know, our mother's milk is everything. It's love, it's comfort, it's, it's all of the feelings mashed into one. So yes, you know, our association with, food and using food to make us feel better starts really young. But on this point, I will say that there isn't anything inherently wrong with using food to self-soothe. I think using food to self-soothe and make ourselves feel better can be a really powerful coping mechanism when other options aren't available. We know that, you know, not everybody has access to mental health professionals and all of these things. So yes, food is absolutely um, is is really powerful and there's nothing wrong with it. But um, going back to your point, it does often start quite early on um, mm. for a lot of people. And also, but also disordered eating or using food can, you know, in that way, in a disordered way can happen later on in life when we start, you know, we turn you know, pre-teens or teens when we start dieting, for example. You know, restriction is another really big reason why we, use food or we feel addicted to food or we sort of develop this unhealthy relationship to food is because a lot of us started dieting when we were really young and that then plays into adulthood and then creates all sorts of um, other issues so yeah so two things to remember about food is that you know food is always going to represent love for us and the other Mm. thing is obviously our relationship to food often does start in the early years of our life Love that. So, so powerful. It's very interesting how much of our life is developed when we're young or in those like preteen years, like no wonder they are so like vital and important. Um, so I love that. That's you mentioned that. Um, what are some of like, what are the three biggest myths when it comes to emotional eating? Okay. So the first one is that emotional eating is bad. (laughs) And I think this is the thing, right? And this is very counterintuitive for people to wrap their heads around, but the more that we judge anything, whether it's judging an emotion or judging a behavior like emotional eating, then the more that is going to have power over us and it's going to persist. So emotional eating is not something that's that's bad and that we need to shame ourselves for. It is a perfectly natural coping mechanism, as Kritika just said. I think what we are trying to kind of help anyone uh, realize is that we want people to have emotional skills so that this is they're aware that this is a coping mechanism and this is one coping mechanism and they have other options that they can turn to and that food is not a default thing that people are turning to every single day. But I think the the biggest thing that a person can do to move past emotional eating is actually to accept it. And the moment I was just like, oh, I'm an emotional eater and I'm emotionally eating, it kind of just, I started doing it a lot less. It's very strange how, you know, when we, when we let go of that judgment, a lot of 
a lot of the behavior can can go away. So the biggest myth is that it's bad. Um, the second myth around emotional eating is that we need willpower. It's all about having willpower and self-discipline and that we need yeah. to like control ourselves around food. And that if only I had more willpower, then I wouldn't, you know, eat that block of chocolate. And actually this goes to Kritika's point earlier around restriction. What we know about willpower and self-discipline is that this is this idea of if I restrict myself then and if I don't do it then you know that's what's going to solve the issue and actually it's that restriction it's having willpower it's trying to approach this thing with discipline that then creates this uncontrollable urge to eat it's the it's the very willpower is creating emotional eating and it's not the other way around so that's a massive thing that people need to stop saying you know what, if only I could just stop emotionally eating and if I could just be more, like have a stronger mind and just like discipline myself. No, that's, <laughs> you are missing the entire point. And then I guess the third myth is that emotional eating is about food, you know. And that... <laughs> <laughs> like, that's like the biggest one. Yeah. It's, like, it's not about the food. It's not about, about the food. <laughs> very little to do with the food itself yeah (laughs) because if we focus on the food then you take away emotional eating even if a person heals emotional eating if they don't look at any of their emotions or anything that's going on in their life then they will absolutely just develop a different coping mechanism whether Mm. it's alcohol or yeah or netflix or work or, or any of the other ones that are available it's got food is just the the you know, the thing that we're reaching to, to make us feel better, but it's not about the food. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, to that that point, a lot of people that are, for example, uh, stop drinking or, Mm. you know, stop using alcohol often then turn to uh, food, you know, so Mm. we do often have a lot of clients that have stopped drinking, but have then sort of started using food as the coping mechanism. They just switched their, yeah, they just switched their, yeah, they didn't really, it was probably easier, honestly, for them to give up alcohol than it was to give up like unhealthy food or, or whatever they choose to like cope with. Mm. Um, And and there are certainly like, like coping mechanisms that are healthier than others. Like a lot of people use um, exercise as a great coping mechanism, you know, but people can really overuse that as well and get to the point where they're kind of like overtraining, exercising all of the time because that's the thing that they're they're using instead of whatever they may be used in the past. So I think one of the best things that Kritika and I experienced working at the health retreat where we worked together in, in Thailand was that we used to see all like amazing uh, clients from all over the world in all kind of different cultures and uh, and careers and they they would come in and they really were coming there because they you know wanted to have a healthy holiday and really kind of they were usually burnt out or stressed out something was going on and so they needed this health retreat and they were so overly focused on like their food and their exercise and they really thought you know if I can just come here sort out my food sort out my exercise and Kritika and I would speak to them and be like um the food whatever is going on in your food or your exercise like this is a symptom of your life like let's have a look at what's going on in your career in your relationships with your family because the health your health your physical health your emotional health your mental health is a symptom of your life and so the more that we can look at okay what is happening in your life and how can we 
set up boundaries for you? How can you walk away from a toxic relationship? How can you maybe, you know, leave work at a reasonable time? These things are going to mean that you make different choices about your food or your exercise or anything, but it's never about, they are the symptoms of a much deeper issue. And so it was just, it was, it was funny to see it over and over and over again. And it didn't matter how amazingly successful or intelligent a person was. They all thought that it was about the food and the training and it was never about the food or the training. (laughs) It's crazy. Like once you see a pattern like that, you can't ever unsee it. (laughs) Yeah. Now it just like pops up and you're like, yep, this is what it is. Yeah. I remember seeing it on repeat all the time. You just see the same patterns being repeated in different forms, in different ways, with different coping mechanisms, with different issues. But it's all, it's all always about what's going on in the inside in your Mm. life. And then sort of, you know, all these behaviors manifest on the outside. Yeah. I remember sitting with a client and she was a wonderful client and she'd come for quite a, like four weeks and, and she really, really wanted to lose weight and she wanted to get her eating under control and her training. And so we were sitting down and she was like, okay, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to do Bikram yoga. And so I really need to make some time for it and I'm going to meal prep. And I'm just going to get better at, you know, eating healthy and exercising regularly. I said, fantastic. Let's sit down. Let's look at your day. Tell me about your life back home. Like, what does a regular day look like for you? Because I want to work out with you. Like, where are you going to find the time to meal prep and to, you know, go to Bikram Yoga? And she was like, okay. And she said to me, and it wasn't until she started talking that she realized there was even an issue. She said, well, I wake up at um, 2.30 in the morning because I run a florist and so I need to get to the flower markets by 3 a.m. And then I buy all of the flowers and then I drive to my shop and then I open the store and she was going through everything. And then she's like, and then I go home briefly and I give my kids, she had four kids, I give my kids breakfast and then I take them all to school and then I go back to the shop and then (laughs) she went through this day that went from 2.30 in the morning until 9 p.m. with no break. No break. <laughs> and I was like, um, Bikram yoga is not, not going to happen. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I would not be meal prepping after a day like that. So it was a much bigger conversation around her work and her parenting and her boundaries and her partner and everything. But it's like she'd never realized she was shaming herself for yeah. not exercising and not meal prepping and not looking at everything that she had on her plate Mm. that was contributing to a lack Mm. of those behaviors yeah Yeah. Yeah. whoa so like so powerful I I think sometimes it takes um like a third party to help people recognize because otherwise people are just stuck in their you know their daily kind of go 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 and like this is just the schedule they created for themselves Um, So sometimes it takes, you know, a third party, like a health coach or a physician to really help them step back and take like a bird's eye view of like, this is my schedule and like, and really look at that to dig down and kind of get to, um, you know, the root cause and the deeper issue as to like why they might be reaching for X, Y, and Z food when they really want to be reaching for something else. Um, Mm. So, whoa, that's so, that's a very, very great example. Um, So in terms of emotional eating, how does one heal their emotional eating in like a healthy, sustainable way? 
Well, <laughs> I was like, I can, I can talk to this. Um, we, you know, we really believe that it's, it's a holistic approach, right? And so we can mm-hmm. talk about there, is, there are short-term things that people can do, but then there are longer-term things because as we have kept saying during this interview, you know, it's really much deeper. It's about what's going on in a person's life. So initially, you know, healing emotional eating is all about for anyone that is a dieter, for example, this is the, like, it's a huge piece, but if you are someone that diets and that controls your food in any way, then emotional eating is going to be an issue. So what you need to first do is really look at how can you pull away from diet mentality and, and reject diet mentality completely. And this is a longer piece of work. You know, it's very hard for, for anyone that's been dieting their whole life to suddenly be like, Oh, you know what? I'm never going to diet again. (laughs) Like it's, it, it can feel, we can feel like, oh my God, but if I don't kind of count my calories or, you know, watch what I eat, then I'm just going to be eating burgers and pizza and fries every day of the week, which is just not true, by the way, for anyone listening, but it's a fear that a lot of us have. So we need to first kind of, yeah, work on our relationship with, with dieting and let go of that. Do you want to say something? To yeah, that? no, I was going to say before we close that point is a, a good, good way to start uh, is by acknowledging and really understanding how much harm dieting and you know restriction and deprivation does to our physical, emotional, and mental health. So you know, and like Sam said, this is it's not an easy process because you mm. know if we've spent a majority of our life sort of knee deep in diet culture and counting calories and you know and and being told and for a lot of us we've constantly got, been given the message that you know we need a diet to be able to eat healthy if that is what we believe and you know that's all we've known when you know in regards to healthy living then coming out of that isn't easy but i guess the first thing to do for anyone that is looking to um, you know or maybe interested in exploring kind of sort of getting off the diet roller coaster is really reading and studying up on all the you know the downside you know the fact that 25 percent of people that engage in dieting end up having developing an eating disorder you know 25 percent of all dieters will go on to develop an eating disorder and that percentage is even higher for people that sort of engage in more extreme forms of dieting um, and the fact that you know diets have a success rate of no more than five percent so, you know, <laughs> and there's no diet in the oh history of the world that has ever worked for more than two to four percent of people for longer than two to five years. There just isn't any studies that support diets that, that diets work long term. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, so keeping all of these facts in mind, you know, once you really start sort of acknowledging this and reading and studying and looking at alternative approaches, it, it slowly, you know, hits home and becomes a little bit easier. Yeah. And then I think the other, the strategies that we help people with is, you know, teaching people how to process their emotions. So turning to tools like journaling or whether it's movement or whether it's tapping, there's, there's different ways that a person can process their emotions, but learning how to process their emotions and then learning how to shift their emotions and develop alternative coping mechanisms, right? So we need to be able to self-soothe. We need to be able to generate positive emotions, but we don't, 
necessarily need to use food to do that, you know? And so helping people come up with other things that they can do that really do make them feel good and make them feel the way they want to feel. Because for example, if you're eating because you're stressed, then what you really need to get clear on is what's everything you can possibly think of that makes you feel calm and relaxed. And then doing one of those things in a moment of stress rather than turning to food, because we want to be able to to regulate our emotions and to feel the way that we want to feel. But so many of us are just mindlessly turning to food. So yeah, that's, they're, they're kind of like the short term what we do. And then, and then the other components are really looking at a person's uh, relationship with their body and self-love, which for me is a huge uh, passion of mine. It was a huge part of my story. So anyone that has body image issues or self-hatred in any kind of way, shape or form, this is something that absolutely needs to be healed in order to heal emotional eating because it really, the two go together. Um, and there's a few different ways and I don't have to go on and on and on about it, but it's really important that a person works on their body acceptance and on, mm. yeah, just loving themselves, the relationship they have with themselves. And then I guess the final part of, of, of healing emotional eating is looking at, well, where are the emotions coming from in the first place? So mm. if we look at emotions as being feedback, as being data, as telling us, okay, something's, you know, maybe not right. <clears throat> if I'm lonely, well, why is that? Is it that I'm I'm wanting an intimate relationship or that I'm in an intimate relationship that isn't going well? Or is it that I don't have a community of friends? Or is it that I'm at work all of the time and I'm not setting boundaries so I'm not actually connecting with people? So it's about looking at, well, what is the emotion that's coming up and what is going on in my life that is causing that emotion? And then how can I address that? Well, I love everything that you guys have just said. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> I love that you just um, mentioned like self-love and body love and really touched on the body image issues. Um, Cause I personally, I used to weigh over 200 pounds and then I dropped down um, to 123 pounds wow. and thinking I would like love my body once I got to this goal, ideal weight. And then like, it's funny because you get down to that you know, air quotes, goal weight. And you're like, hmm, so I'm not happy. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's like, you're open that. Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> when I was telling you my story in the beginning, when I was like depressed around the age of 30, that was also when I was at my thinnest and at the time fittest and I had got below 60 kilos, which I don't know what that is. I think it's about 120 pounds yeah. roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And so I'd reached my goal weight for my 30th birthday. I remember standing on the scale on that day and I was like, mm, 59.4. And I wasn't happy. <laughs> right? Oh my, it's, and it's like, you almost have to, in my, from my experience, I was like killing myself to like get to that weight. Mm -hmm. I was going to like indoor spin class all the time. I was running all the time. I was just not eating, eating enough calories, all of these things to just to get down to that weight. Mm -hmm. So my, I was like hating on my body just to get there. And mm -hmm. so I just like, I felt terrible. I looked not good. It was just like one of those things that where it's like, whoa, like how different would this have looked if I loved my body through the process? Um, and it's crazy now because I sit probably 25, 30 pounds heavier and I love my body. Like I'm so excited to sit here at this weight and I feel comfortable in it. And like, I like to look at myself in the mirror, like I'm not disgusted by it. And so it's one of those things where, 
um, body image and self-love. And I think appreciating your body through the transformation process is absolutely huge. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Um, and you kind of mentioned, um, turning to a more healthy, um, coping mechanism. Um, let's kind of cruise into emotional health and fitness. Um, what is emotional health and fitness? What does that mean? Emotional health and fitness, I think is just, um, we, we like to give people all different tools that they can, so that they can feel really emotionally well. So it's things like, you know, uh, a gratitude practice. It's things like, um, as I say, the, the way that we teach people kind of developing alternate coping mechanisms is by, um, being able to label that negative emotion that is maybe triggering their eating in the moment. And then asking themselves okay well what's the opposite emotion um so again for loneliness it might be loved and connected or for stressed it's calm and relaxed you know just going through okay what's the opposite and then writing out lists of we we ask people to write out lists of people places things activities sounds smells that make them feel that way so then they have these things that they can turn to it's things like meditation it's it's like all of the tools that we can use to feel emotionally and mentally well that's what we mean by mental and emotional fitness it's how can you kind of create this enormous toolbox um, with all of the things like there are so many things that people can use you know getting enough sleep is another one in the toolbox that is so important and that so many people kind of underestimate or writing out you know a joy list like everything that creates joy for you there are so many kind of different little little tools that help someone be emotionally and mentally fit so that's what we mean by that Mm, I love that you mentioned sleep. I think that is the <laughs> most underrated, um, like just way to feel good and be, have clarity with your day and just functioning at like optimal, like levels. Um, cause I know I used to think that I could run off like five hours of sleep and I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I'm fine. I can do all the things and have no sleep. And I'm like, I was crazy. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, yeah. so I'm so glad that you mentioned sleep. I think it's a huge piece. I love, um, to always look at my clients like sleep levels. I'm like, okay, good quality sleep too. Not just like, you know, hit or miss here and there, like a few hours. Because the other thing about sleep, sorry, just on that point is that so many people when they emotionally eat or they they might be labeling it emotional eating, but they're actually exhausted and it's an energy issue. And so they're craving sugar or turning to sugar because that's a really smart thing actually for the body to do when you're exhausted because sugar is its quickest source of energy and fuel. Mm. And so a person might be like, I'm an emotional eater. When you actually get down to it, they're exhausted because they're not sleeping. And so if we look at the sleep, that might be something that, you know, helps their relationship to food. So sleep is a huge one. Mm, so important. Um, so how can someone use their emotions as a GPS to find what feels good? I love that you kind of mentioned the opposites and then making lists. Are there any other kind of tips or tricks that you have? I think it's the, it's, you know, using your emotions as a GPS, um, is one of the first things to understand here is that like, like Sam said earlier on, it's about the fact that, you know, emotions give us feedback. So it's it's acknowledging that they're there to show us what's going on in our lives and and creating that relationship with our emotions of curiosity. And, you know, and when an emotion comes up, instead of kind of going, this is bad, I'm going to numb it, I'm going to eat or do something to sort of get rid of this emotion, really sitting with that emotion and asking ourselves, you know, where is it coming from? Why is it showing up? And what is it here to tell me? 
you know, it's so important to create that relationship of curiosity with our emotions. And when we do that, that's when we actually, you know, they become really powerful sort of um, little messengers and they tell us, you know, what's going on, you know, because if we're feeling bored, for example, if we're concerned, you know, everybody experiences boredom, you know, it's, it's especially at this time, you know, in our lives, I guess, you know, boredom is the wrong one to use as, a, as an example, because everyone's like, well, I'm always bored. But, you know, let's say, because we do hear boredom a lot when I, you know, often I ask the community for, you know, what makes you emotionally eat and boredom is very high up there. You know, boredom can be, it's not just a, a momentary emotion. It could be because we're disconnected. You know, boredom is of, often a disconnect from either ourselves or from you know our community from our people so it can often be because so so boredom isn't just an emotion that we want to sort of not feel and numb you know if we explore it and we kind of become curious it may tell us that you know we may want to you know develop some creative uh, you know habits or you know read more or go out there and connect more it's like it's really yeah, it might tell you you hate your job. Maybe you're bored because yeah. you're in a mind-numbing job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you spend your whole day in a mind-numbing job, then you're probably going to want to eat something that makes you feel alive in the evening. You know, like you want to feel something, so you're going to turn to food because food makes us feel all kinds of things. So, so you know, so it's it's really about creating that uh, relationship of curiosity with our emotions. So that we can then use them as messengers. Whoa, I love that. Yeah, I think um, boredom, that's a huge one, especially right now. So I think finding the like really what's going on and like how to, like you said, it's like a disconnect. I think for a long time, um, I have been bored with like jobs or I didn't feel connected there. So it's like you are focused. Like I, I remember I couldn't even focus at the task at hand. Cause I'm just like, I'm so bored. This is like mundane. I don't love it. Um, versus now looking at my career, I'm like, Oh, I like love everything about what I'm doing. It feels very purposeful and I feel connected. Um, so it's very interesting how, boredom is about connection and things like that and and truly finding what feels good um is there a process um available to work with your emotions mm. i think the the process that we kind of take people through is it's like a, a four-step process and and we've kind of touched on on this today already but it's it, the first step is is awareness right so it's mm. just becoming aware that you're experiencing an emotion um which might sound silly that people might not be aware of that but for many people they're kind of experiencing all kinds of emotions with with very little awareness that it's going on and the, i guess the good thing for anyone that emotionally eats is that reaching for the food that's the sign that you're experiencing <laughs> an emotion right we we have something right there that's telling you oh you might be experiencing an emotion right now so it's awareness of you know step one Step two is that word that we keep using, which is curiosity. Oh, okay. So it's, I'm aware I'm experiencing an emotion. What is this emotion and what is it here to teach me? You know, like what's the message that it has for me today? Um, why is it showing up right now? Is there something or someone that has triggered it? You know, basically just becoming very curious about the emotion and why it might be happening 
right at this moment. And then the third step is to process that emotion. And so that is where we would encourage people. For me, I'm a massive journaler, so I'm always talking about journaling. Yeah. I push <laughs> that down everyone's throat. I'm like, write it out, journal it. I don't exactly. care, just do it. I think and it's like says, the of passage for like coaches. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I think it's like the outside world, journaling probably not really like, but any coach. Like, oh. They're like, get over your journaling. <laughs> I'm like, no, journal in your face. <laughs> yeah. Can I just do it in my head? I'm like, no, no, you cannot just do it in your head. And like, I don't want it typed. I want it handwritten. Exactly. So you write it out because not only does the page give that, there's a a physical outlet for the emotion on the page, right? You're getting it out. So it's not stored in your body or in your psyche. But it's also when you have to write about it, you, you have to kind of make connections about what is happening and why it's going on and so it's also kind of that piece of curiosity is wrapped up in journaling as well it's kind of making sense of and it awareness and, it's like yeah. sometimes we're not even aware to begin with but when we start writing there's a lot like that you know that those downloads do come you know you, yeah. things start to become more and clearer and clearer if we you know if we actually engage with that process yeah so once we've gone through awareness curiosity processing the emotion then the final step is what we say shifting the emotion which is this um like we've said coming up with okay well what is the feeling that i do want to be feeling and how can i generate that so that's developing the alternate coping mechanism so it's kind of like four steps awareness curiosity processing the emotion and then shifting the emotion I love that. Um, speaking of alternative coping mechanisms, um, so what coping mechanisms, what are they? And like, when do we develop them? Is that when, like, when we're feeling these so-called like bad or um, emotions, like stressed? Like for me, I know stress eating, I always reach for something crunchy. Like I, I just know that about myself because I'm like a little bit of like anger. I'm trying to get something out. I don't really know what it is, but... Uh huh. Yeah. So coping mechanisms are basically anything that you that you turn to 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 make yourself feel better and to self soothe. So um, we are all. Every single human has has is running on something called the pleasure principle, right? Which is this mm. basic principle in psychology, which says that humans will always avoid pain and seek pleasure. Mm. And so when a person is experiencing pain, which for many people, any kind of uncomfortable emotion feels like pain to them because they they haven't been taught how to process it or sit with it or accept it and so then they turn away from that pain and seek pleasure and so a coping mechanism is literally anything that kind of allows a person to avoid pain and have a hit of pleasure so as it's as we said it you know it can be food it can be alcohol it can be netflix it can be work it can be exercise it can be anything that's what a coping mechanism is and we develop them so young like as little little children um Mm. and and initially we kind of rely on our parents because we don't our brain hasn't developed right and so this is the other thing to be aware of like when we look at brain development (laughs) our the the prefrontal cortex of our brain which is kind of you know making rational decisions and and processing things that isn't fully developed until you're 25 ali so you're right on it I know I'm on the cusp. I, it's late. You're done now. Yeah, I'm like right now. I'm like, but I feel like Your I'm a late bloomer, so I'm like a little further out. <laughs> but um, 
But in, you know, so our amygdala, which is like the little fear center, our fight, flight, freeze response is the first part of our brain to develop and it's fully developed when we're born. And then our hippocampus, which is like the emotional limbic system that is developing, that's kind of fully developed by the age, I think it's about the age of eight. I could be wrong on that. If anyone's fact checking that, (laughs) but it's early, right? Around that. Um, And so basically what that means is, and you'll see this, right? Little babies, little kids, they, they're incredibly emotional. And that's what I love about kids is like sometimes I, you know, I was just away with my nephew and he would scream and then like two seconds later, he'd be fine. <laughs> and I'm like, if only that were appropriate as an adult. <laughs> they just need to get through it. Yeah. Well, because he screams, he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't have that outlet. He probably wouldn't be okay which is what happens with adults. We don't have those outlets. We don't give ourselves the opportunity to experience our emotions fully and really, you know, move them through us. And that's when we don't feel okay because they just don't go away. You know, that's, they stay. It's really tough because kids are actually, you know, kind of living, doing it right. Like they're just experiencing their emotions and what they do when you're really little is they turn to their parent to be the one to regulate, to, to regulate and mm. help them and soothe them and also teach them how to soothe themselves. And very often, and this is not a parent bashing thing because my goodness, like parents are doing the best job that they can yeah. and all of them were parented and we all learn our stuff from other people. But essentially, you know, very often, as they say, parents are not only using food, but they're, they're doing things like when a kid is crying, shh, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Really teaching kids from a very early age that crying is not appropriate, that they need to calm down, that they can't be angry, that every kind of negative emotion, because the adult isn't comfortable with their own, when they see it in their kid, when they see a kid having a tantrum or anything that's going on, it's like, shh, shh, whatever we can do to contain this. And so then that's what kids learn is like, okay, I can't feel that. That one's not okay. I can't be angry. I can't be sad. I can't. And so then they're just watching. Okay, what do I do? Oh, I know. Okay. You know, I saw this the other day outside a shop where a little girl fell over and started crying because she hurt her leg. And the mother went, shh, let's go get you a milkshake. (laughs) And I was like, oh, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And it's not, again, she's not a bad parent. It's interesting to see these coping mechanisms are developed really, really, really young. And it's that association, it's that association in our brain that, you know, our brains are super smart. It's like they know what's going to make us feel better. So Mm. it's that association that forms when we're young is that, okay, if I'm hurting or if I'm in pain or if I'm not feeling good and I eat something, I'm going to feel good, you know, or I'm going to, you know, my pain's going to get better. So it's that association that forms. And then it's a very subconscious process. It's not, it's not, we're not always aware of it. We just know your brain knows, your subconscious mind knows that when I'm in pain or I'm not feeling good, if I reach for some food, it's going to make me feel better. So again, you know, we're not always doing this consciously, you know, coping mechanisms are often very sub, are a very subconscious process. So yeah, just having that awareness of what we've spoken about in terms of, you know, just when we, create that relationship with our emotions and start to become curious it automatically shows us that ah if I'm feeling an emotion I'm using food that means that you know I'm trying to shift or change how I'm feeling uh, into something you know into maybe a more pleasurable experience or emotion Mm. 
So uh, this is like, I'm, my mind is just blown. I'm loving all of this right now. Um, I was listening to a podcast. Um, I forget which one it was, but they use this example about of how animals are really good at moving fully through their emotion. Like yeah. if a, you know, a rabbit is getting chased by another animal, they go through this entire process where you know, once they escape the, you know, from like almost dying, um, they like shake and shake shake through. And then like, that's how they process fully through their emotions. When, um, humans, we kind of get stuck and we don't fully feel through them. So is that when like the suppression of all the emotions happen? Yeah. And that's very closely like, that's got a lot to do with the stress cycle. So it's like, if we don't complete the stress cycle, when we have when we're exposed to a stress, whatever it is, obviously back in the day, it would have been a tiger chasing us. Now it could be a nasty email or it could be, you know, whatever. And when we're exposed to the stress, the body produces cortisol and adrenaline and all of these hormones to, you know, help us deal with that stress. And, you know, it prepares the body, gets the muscles ready, all of that. But what happens is for most of us, we don't, you know, back in, in primal sort of state, if we were being chased by a tiger, we would run, you know, either you'd run away or you'd get eaten by the tiger, but you would run away. You know, you would use those hormones that are being produced in your body and they would actually, you know, you'd, you'd do something. Whereas now we have this production of hormones in our body, but we don't necessarily expend them. We don't use them. They just sort of stay circulating in our system. That's why movement and, you know, vigorous shaking and breathing uh, is a really powerful techniques to sort of get the stress moving and get them, you know, to complete the stress cycle. So, um, Sam, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I was just, as you were talking about this, I was thinking, you know what, I feel like we should say a disclaimer in that this whole kind of dealing with emotions and, and fully moving through emotions can't always happen in the moment when we're experiencing mm. the emotion. Like right now, the world is so different that I feel like so many people are living and working from home. And so they probably do have more flexibility to be doing this process of like, okay, I'm aware, I'm curious, I'm going to journal, I'm going to shift my emotions. Like we cannot, (laughs) if you're at work and you're suddenly experiencing an emotion, you can't just like, you know, stop the meeting, hold on everyone. I'm just going to grab my journal and I'm going to, I'm going to work through this emotion or I'm just going to go and complete this stress cycle right now. So I think it's really important to acknowledge, like, this is not like this linear process of like one, two, three, four, I can do this in the moment. It might be just getting, becoming a bit more aware. Okay. This is going on for me. And then in that moment, doing whatever is appropriate to regulate your emotions. So again, you know, if if you're feeling stressed, what you can absolutely do in any moment, regardless of where you are, is to really slow down your breathing and take some deep breaths. So that's going to be really great for, yeah, for regulating that emotion and for trying to shift your body at least out of that state and into, you know, your parasympathetic nervous system and, and being relaxed. But it might be that when you get home later in the day, you might need to then sit down with a journal and think about what actually went on or what triggered it. Um, and then you might, you know, do something else that, that is a longer, you know, take a relaxing bath or whatever. But I just want people to know that, you know, we can't always be expected to, yeah, to move through the emotion, to process it, to shift it right when it's happening. Because the reason again, why, why people don't do that is because we're all 
social beings like in having these interactions and we are in meetings or in the car or doing things and so we need to just be able to do whatever we can do in the moment but then know okay I, I can't just ignore that that happened and like come back to it at a later stage when we have the time and and start making whatever changes we might need to make Mm, very important. I love that you mentioned that. I think it's um, like right now, like the state that we're in, everyone's working from home. It's like you said, a bit more flexible to do the things that we need to be doing like in real time. Um, But I think knowing that once we kind of get back to the normal, like whatever that may look like, realizing that you can always come back to your breath, I think is huge. It's like the one thing that we can't like, the only time we always can have have. (laughs) is when we're six feet under. So I think that's really important. And the breath is so, to me, it's so underutilized. Um, Completely. Because it can really drop you into just that like rest and digest phase where you are just much more relaxed and can think clearly versus that fight or flight and just on edge. Um, So I think that's so important. Um, And then also making that time later in the day to really almost have like a brain dump and just write down everything that you were feeling so you can fully process it. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we get in this like such busy go, 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 go lifestyle that we have every intention to do it later, but then we don't do it. So we're still haven't, you know, processed it. And so it's just kind of lingering within us. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for how to like, I guess, for people to ensure that they do make that time or, you know, fully process that emotion. I love that you mentioned the journaling later once they're home. Yeah. I think that's such a good point, Ali, is that we don't, we don't always want to do it. And like, let's just yeah. acknowledge that that's because it's work. Mm, <laughs> so, it's not it fun. It necessarily feel good. Yeah. No. You know, that's it's, hard, you know, eventually we feel better once we've done it, but in the moment, it doesn't always feel good. It can be quite confronting and, and difficult to sit yeah. with your emotions. So I think the only thing that people can do is just kind of try and do a little bit more than they've, they've done before, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you've never journaled, maybe you just make a time once a week to do it. You know, I think we, we need to start really small and we don't need to, again, there's, I don't want to give people another task that then they judge themselves for not doing and yeah. shame themselves because they didn't journal today. Yeah. It's like, yes, you will experience emotions every day, but you don't need to journal every day. I certainly don't journal every day, but just kind of, getting yeah doing a little bit more than you did last week and getting better Mm. at you know just really doing whatever you can to put some time aside to reflect you know if you can do that every day amazing if you can only do it on the weekend okay do it on the weekend but just to be aware that without that without that pause and reflection of what's going on in your life then it's going to be very difficult to make any changes because Mm. you're just going to be running on autopilot over. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, 100%. I heard this stat. It's like 85 to 90% of our life by the time that we're 30 is on autopilot. So I think yeah. by creating this time of reflection is mm-hmm. huge so that you can break that cycle and really see what parts of your life were going well, where you, you know, didn't love things that, you know, happened throughout the week. And it can just be this like brief pause. It doesn't even have to be that long, like five, 10 Mm -hmm. minutes, even. I think people kind of make these 
massive goals around their, they're like, my journal reflection has to be 30 minutes and just like take all this time and be in this elegant pen. And I'm like, beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, no, just like do it. Like it can be very like simple. Um, I always tell people who've never journaled, like the goal is to like get the emotion out. So it doesn't need to be grammatically correct. You don't need to Right, you can handwriting doesn't need to be great. Yeah, give us read it back. (laughs) It's like nobody's ever going to read this. (laughs) It's so it's so interesting how much people like judge themselves, and they won't even do the thing. Um, Then it's it's creating. You know, it's at the end of the day that resistance is often just a delay or you know an avoidance technique. You know, that mm. resistance or that perfectionism is often avoidance. You know, perfectionism mm-hmm. is always often rooted in avoidance. So if you're, you know, and that itself can be a really interesting thing to sit with is that if I'm constantly delaying something that I know may, will make me feel good or is good for me, then, uh, you know, there's a bit of avoidance and that is fine. You know, having compassion for yourself in that process as well. And, and I, I'd like to add to what Sam said was that, you know, sitting with our emotions, processing our emotions, getting aware if you've never done it, it it can be, you know, our life's work. (laughs) It's not often easy, you know, so, um, so it's not, this is not an overnight process. This is never a quick fix. This is just, you know, slowly sort of creating a relationship with our emotions and, and slowly doing whatever you can. Um, And if there's too much resistance coming up and then, you know, obviously sitting with that and, kind of trying to understand where the avoid, why there's so much avoidance of mm. sort of. Well, yep. I love this. This is amazing. Um, I feel like that's a, a good place to wrap up. Did I miss anything that you guys want to add in? <laughs> I mean, we I'm could talk everything. all day. So. <laughs> <laughs> you should stop us. That is a very good thing to do. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Okay, where so what, can you guys share a bit about your coaching business and where can we connect with you on social? Absolutely. So, yeah, Critica and I um, run a business called Spart, which is all about helping uh, people with their emotional health and helping them heal emotional eating if that's an issue for them. So we are over at Instagram. We are at underscore Spart, but Spart is spelled S-P-A-R-K-D. There's no there's no E in it. And then another little underscore, you'll find us. Or our website is sparkcommunity.com. Um, and yeah, on our, on our website, you'll find our course, which is Heal Emotional Eating, which is an eight module online program, which goes through all of the modules that we've kind of talked about today about coping mechanisms, diet mentality, self-love, body acceptance, processing emotions, all of it. So that's there. But for anyone that that just wants to have kind of helpful tips about emotional health and just join us over on Instagram. That's probably where we are the most active and where we do little videos and, and posts and, you know, answer questions and all of that. So come on over and join us because yeah, we're going to be doing a big kind of month of, of mental and emotional health because October is mental, mental health awareness month. And so we are going to be giving, yeah, 31 different tools that people can use for their emotional fitness. So come on over to Spark for that. Oh my gosh. Amazing. I'll be sure to put all of your links in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining. Um, we, I'm so glad that we could connect, make this happen. We're in all three different time zones. <laughs> it's noon here for me. It's about one is coming up. 
Yeah. And then 5.30 in the morning for you. Oh my gosh. Um, well, I'm super thankful that we could do this. I'm so grateful. We had such an amazing conversation. I really can't wait to get this out and get my audience connected with um, you on social. And so we can start interacting and really spreading emotional awareness. I love this. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us, Ali. It was great. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Ali McGee podcast. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at AliMcGee.com and follow me on Instagram at AliMcGee underscore.